the Indian government considers that vote itself as an illegal act and has basically demanded a crackdown from Canada on those activists who have been organizing this referendum. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau dropped a bombshell before Parliament last week when he accused the government of India of assassinating a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Hardeep Singh Nijar was a Sikh dissident living in British Columbia when he was gunned down by assailants outside his place of worship. Nijar had long agitated for an independent Sikh state, apparently putting him in the crosshairs of Narendra Modi's government. The idea that a democracy like India would carry out a hit on North American soil is a major development that will complicate American foreign policy as well. Joining me to discuss this situation is Justin Ling, a Canadian journalist and author of the Bug-Eyed and Shameless Substack, of which I am a longtime subscriber. We kick off discussing what we know thus far about the circumstances of the murder of Nijar, and then have a longer conversation about what this means for Canadian diplomacy and American foreign policy going forward. As always, a huge thank you to those of you who are premium subscribers to the show. We are posting regular updates to our premium feed. You can access it via the Apple Podcasts app directly in the app with just a few taps of your finger. You can also go to patreon.com slash global dispatches if you want to access it via Spotify. And if you are on our globaldispatches.org mailing list, you can upgrade your subscription directly via Substack. Thank you. Any platform you choose is one I'm thankful that you have chosen. Now here is my conversation with journalist Justin Ling of the Bug-Eyed and Shameless Substack. Can you remind listeners who was Hardeep Singh Nijar? So Hardeep Singh Nijar was a fairly prominent Sikh activist just outside Vancouver in British Columbia. He was, I think, plumber by trade. He has spent years kind of in and around 
the movement for an independent Khalistan, what some may call Punjab in India. He fits in neatly to a number of organizations that have been out there for years that have been trying to push for either greater autonomy or full independence for the region from India. And, you know, by all accounts, was pretty well liked and well respected in the community. He was the president of a local Gorda and seemingly pretty well known. Now, with being well known came some infamy. On the other side of that, the Indian government designated him as a terrorist a number of years ago. They identified him with a bombing campaign that took place in the early 2000s, the evidence for which is quite honestly quite shaky. We haven't really seen all of that. But for a number of years now, the Indian government has basically accused Canada of harboring him and has alleged that he is part of basically an extremist network that has launched a violent campaign, an insurgency against the Indian government, and in some cases against fellow Sikhs in the area. So, you know, he carries a lot of significance, I think, for the Indian government, but locally in Canada, he was not quite as controversial a figure, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it seems perhaps from a Canadian perspective, if the allegations of supporting terrorism were unfounded, he was, you know, just exercising his, you know, Canadian rights of freedom of speech to advocate for Sikh independence. Yeah, and certainly the Indian government has a much different perspective on basically what is allowed speech in this context. For the past number of years, Sikh organizations, including Nijar, have pushed for a global referendum on the future of Punjab or Khalistan. And has basically, and it's actually gearing up just, it's in a matter of weeks at this point, they're gearing up to hold this international vote. The Indian government considers that vote itself as an illegal act and has basically demanded a crackdown from Canada on those activists who have been organizing this referendum and has demanded it for the past number of years. And indeed, Nijar and a number of other Sikh activists, both in Canada and elsewhere, have been very public that they're worried about retaliation from the Indian government over this referendum. And indeed, there's some indication that in the weeks before his murder, that Nijar himself was basically acknowledging that he was at risk. We hear from other members of that community, from other Sikh leaders, that he was getting briefed by our security services on possible threats to his life. So this is certainly... A difficult situation. I, I mean, the Indian government has been patently unreasonable for a while now when it comes to demanding that Canada intervene basically to quell what is a legitimate, for the most part, independence movement that is both here, it's in the UK, it's in the US, and it's in India. And they have been vocal in their outrage that Canada won't do so. What do we know about these circumstances of his murder? Not a lot. We know that the day in which he was murdered earlier this summer, he was leaving the Gurdwara where he was the president, that he made it to his car. Based on some reporting, it's possible that his car was actually boxed in or blocked from leaving. We know from some security camera footage that two kind of heavyset men approached his vehicle, the driver's side door. They shot him multiple times, and they made off with a third man in a getaway car. That, for months, actually, was about all we knew. This story had not really gained national attention. It was obviously top of mind for many Sikhs in the area, but his killing was not exactly a national or even international news story. But 
there was suspicions from the very beginning in the community that the Indian government had played a role. In fact, if you look at some of the Sikh organizations, both based in Vancouver and New York and elsewhere, they have made the allegation from day one that the Indian government, and in particular, the Indian consulate, had had a role to play in Nijar's killing. They went so far as to name a number of the diplomatic officials who they believe were responsible. They actually added a question to this referendum that's taking place in October, asking six if they believed that Nijar's killing was done at the behest of the Indian government. So for many people in the community, the culprit seemed very, very clear. For the rest of the country, they were barely aware it happened. And it really wasn't until the prime minister emerged in the House of Commons to reveal that they had intelligence pointing at the Indian government that this really exploded into a national and international story. And that was just a true bombshell. The prime minister of Canada accusing another democracy, India, of orchestrating a hit of a dissident on its soil. What did Trudeau say exactly? And what evidence thus far has the Canadian government given to back up this claim? So this is quite interesting. So when the prime minister emerged to make this allegation, it was preceded by a newspaper report in the Globe and Mail that basically outlined the allegations. It caught everyone off guard for the most part. It didn't carry a lot of details. It was conclusive. I mean, the the language in which the prime minister used was pretty direct. He said bluntly that he had confronted Nehendra Modi, the Indian prime minister, with these allegations. He had made it clear that they had raised this with Indian officials. And within, I think, about 24 hours of this accusation, they had identified the head of the Indian Foreign Intelligence Agency in Canada and had expelled him from the country. He was using diplomatic cover in the consulate. I think he had the title of community affairs minister, but the Canadian government identified him as an intelligence asset. The allegations, like I said, were pretty conclusive, but they didn't carry a lot of evidence. But we've learned more in recent weeks about the details that kind of precipitated the direct accusation. Canada has been basically aware of the allegations for, at the very least, weeks. It, as we understand it, obtained some pretty hard evidence more recently. And that has come in the form of some text messages, we believe, interceptions between the consulate or the high commission, I should say, here in Canada, and potentially those who may have been responsible for the killings. We believe, again, based on some news reporting, that they also have human intelligence sources backing up India's involvement in this plot. And what's really interesting about this is that some of these details actually made it to Canadian journalists even before Trudeau headed to India for the G20 summit. There had been journalists who had approached the prime minister's office basically with copies of some of these text messages. We don't really know what's in them at this point, but text messages that seem to point to the Indian High Commission as being responsible for the killing. The prime minister's office basically asked for leeway of having a bit of time In the days that followed, they made it to India, they made it to New Delhi, they levied this accusation directly at Prime Minister Modi. They obtained intelligence from the US government backing up this claim, augmented it with their own intelligence, and basically levied this accusation pretty directly. As we know, the Indian government has sort of denied the claim, but has also sort of returned 
the allegation with all these recriminations and allegations against the Canadian government. So, you know, this is all to say that I don't know we're going to get the full story yet. It may take some time. Canada doesn't quite operate like the U.S. does. We don't have those sort of speaking indictments that you always see laid by the DOJ or the FBI that sort of fully detail all the allegations from the get-go. The full revelations will probably take some time. But based on the reporting we have thus far, Canada has ample intelligence, both from its own security services and from American intelligence. It seems to have the benefit of direct allegations or, or evidence or details coming from the community. And it was confident enough not just to raise it publicly, but to raise it directly in person, leader to leader with India. It is significant to me that some of the intelligence, as you said, came via that Five Eyes partnership that the United States has with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, this kind of elite intelligence sharing mechanism. And as you noted, reporting has suggested that the United States did share some of this intelligence leading to Prime Minister Trudeau to accuse the Indian government of orchestrating this hit. You sort of insinuated just now that India has stepped up its recriminations of Canada in the wake of Canada's accusation of India of orchestrating this hit. What has been India's response thus far, and how has that been perceived in Canada over the last week or so? This is such a deeply complicated issue, not least of which because the deadliest act of terror to ever take place in Canada was carried out against India, the Air India bombing was the most significant act of terror in Canadian history is 1985. Some 329 people died. And Canada, despite having good intelligence pointing to the plot, despite having identified many of the masterminds and the bomb makers, or at least the suspected masterminds and bomb makers, A, failed to prevent the plot, subsequent to the plot, failed to actually secure convictions on virtually every single one of those identified as part of the project. So there has always been a sore spot here. The attack was likely carried out by Khalistani separatists, and it was carried out basically designed to kill as many Indian civilians as possible. So the fact that such an enormous attack was not stopped and there was not justice brought by Canada has always been a really sore spot in that relationship. It has gotten better in the decades since, but it's always sort of hanging over the Canadian-Indian relationship. Now, in subsequent years, things have gotten better. You know, there has been efforts to try and strike a free trade agreement between the two countries. There's deep, deep ties. I mean, there's a number of Indians in the Canadian parliament. They're well represented in the Canadian cabinet. So there's improving ties, to say the very least. There's strong personal ties. But over the last couple of years, the Canadian government has gotten a little bit more forceful when it comes to Modi's government. New Delhi has certainly moved away from being a more pluralistic democracy. In some cases, it has stepped up persecutions of minorities, including the six. And that has certainly caused divisions with Canada, where we have the largest Sikh population outside of India, and actually a higher percentage of Sikh citizens than even in India. So there's been a growing divide. And that divide has been worsened by the fact that a lot of the major Sikh organizing is happening inside Canada. And India wants us to put a stop to it, essentially. And it has worsened that relationship to the point where that free trade agreement has largely been derailed, where clearly, if these allegations are true, India has been so frustrated that it has taken matters into its own hands, opting for an extraordinary step of assassination 
over you know diplomatic channels. So I think it's remarkable how quickly it soured. I think that's what I would say. We've all known it's been getting worse, but what's been so stark is just how quickly it has gone from being fairly jovial, fairly friendly, even if there's disagreements, even if there's points of contention, even if there's a complicated history, to immediately, to so quickly carrying out such a brazen act in defiance of Canadian sovereignty, so as to kill a Canadian citizen. It's pretty remarkable. What's been the response by the U.S. thus far? I mean, seen from a U.S. foreign policy perspective, this would seem to put the U.S. in kind of a, a tough spot. You know, the U.S. has been courting India for several years now as a bulwark against China, you know, reviving like the so-called quad security architecture. You know, uh, Biden met with Modi just a few weeks ago or a few months ago, I should say, in the White House. What has been the U.S. response, given, of course, that the United States and Canada are just so tightly aligned politically, historically and culturally? To be honest with you, I don't really think we know what the U.S. response is yet. And in fairness, I'm not really sure we even know what the Canadian response is going to be. Yes, in the weeks since this has been revealed, there has been a lot of tough talk. There's been a lot of demands. There's been a lot of insistence that India has to come to the table and participate in the investigation. But we don't really know where this goes next. I mean, yes, you're right. The U.S. government has considered India a strategic partner in the Indo-Pacific. But Canada has thought of things the same way. And in fact, Canada has been dealing with a different foreign interference problem over the last year or so, and it's had to do with China. There has been a, a massive national scandal involving details of a Chinese interference plot, which has tried to co-opt members of the House of Commons that has tried to, in some cases, pour money, illegal campaign donations into the coffers of Canadian politicians, including politicians in Trudeau's own party. So trying to manage the fallout of that, which has also derailed any effort to repair the Canadian-Chinese relationship, which is already pretty bad, which has also stepped up insistence that Canada get more serious about creating strategic partnerships in the Indo-Pacific to isolate China. And all of that was the background, which also led Canada to consider India to be one of those strategic partners. All of that is now out the window as we're trying to figure out what comes next with India. I, I can only imagine that there is a bunch of people around Trudeau who are praying that India comes to its senses, admits responsibility, apologizes, and tries to figure out what a repairing the relationship would look like. But I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't think Canada knows what it's doing. When it comes to the White House, their response has been, suffice it to say, muted, right? You know, they have echoed the calls needed for a necessary investigation. We know, or at least based on reports, we believe the U.S. helped in the initial identification of the High Commission as being responsible or at least complicit, but we don't know what happens next. I mean, it's probably naive to think that America is going to jettison an incredibly important ally in the region over this one, frankly, this one assassination. I mean, I think in the long term, isolating China is the larger strategic goal here, even above preserving the sovereignty of nation states and dissuading nation states from conducting acts of assassination. But I mean, that should be no surprise. I mean, America is still a strategic partner with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go there, there next. I mean, is there talk in Canada that one might be able to draw a straight line between U.S. repairing its relationship with Saudi Arabia, even despite the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and then India feeling that it had 
the room to maneuver in such a way as to assassinate a Canadian on Canadian soil and not worry too deeply that they might have any serious repercussions from the United States, given that the U.S.'s top goal now is to isolate China internationally. Yeah, I mean, how could you not come to that conclusion, to be really honest? Whether we're talking about the Russian poisoning of the Skripal family and its likely involvement in a number of assassinations around the world of either Russian oligarchs or dissidents or expatriates, or whether we're talking about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, or whether we're talking about many other plots, whether it's North Korean, whether it's Iranian, assassination has become a part of the international toolkit. It's mostly by you know, rogue states. But I mean, Israel has used assassination as part of its own domestic and foreign policy for decades, as we know. So it's complicated, suffice to say, but it's clearly in vogue right now. And it is a lot easier to do if you have nothing to lose. It's a lot easier to do if you ha- know you are of such strategic importance that you are indispensable as an ally. I think that's Saudi Arabia's positioning. But I I think there's also, to some degree, a testing of the limits, right? And I think that's what you're seeing from India. I think they're looking to see if they can get away with it. There have been allegations that I think are at this far unsubstantiated, that India has carried out other attacks of a similar nature in Pakistan and, and elsewhere. And I think there's also allegations that Pakistan has carried out these sort of attacks against its dissidents in other countries. So I think they're the testing of the limits. They're trying to figure out states that are, I think, towing the line between pluralistic democracy and more authoritarian or or hybrid. I think they're testing the limits to see what is tolerated. And I think what Canada and the US and the UN, to some degree, does now will determine whether or not that's the case going forward. And frankly, I'm not super optimistic Again, like I said, I think the strategic benefit of having India as an ally in the Indo-Pacific is probably greater than the benefit of holding them to account for this. But it does beg the question going forward, if India is willing to assassinate its own citizens and the citizen of of an ostensibly friendly nation on foreign soil, then what will it do next, right? Clearly, it's not tremendously interested in the rules-based order. Clearly, it's not tremendously interested in civil liberties or personal freedom. So what is to stop it? from making more ingrained overtures to China, especially if it can leverage more benefits from the US and others. I think there is a real problem going forward. How do you convince India to come back into the fold, to stop testing the boundaries, to stop trying to leverage a better deal for itself, to stop trying to deal with its domestic politics on the international stage? I I don't know the answer to that, but I, I don't think capitulation and sort of walking back is going to be the answer here. So from a Canadian foreign policy perspective, it now seems that Canada's ties with the two largest countries on the planet, China and India, have never been worse. I mean, I sort of view this incident with India somewhat in the context of what's known in Canada as like the saga of the two Michaels, these two Canadians who were essentially kidnapped in China, held in prison as a consequence of the United States asking Canada to extradite a alleged criminal who also happens to be a senior Huawei executive. That was eventually resolved, but it seems now that you have this situation in which Canada really only has the United States left, which is fine. It's, it's you know, by far its most important international ally, but it seems 
that Canada's growing international isolation can't really help it down the road. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's an existential problem for the country, right? I mean, Canada has always considered itself a middle power. And while we rarely know what that means, in practice, we've assumed it means trying to negotiate or mediate between big powers. That role largely declined in utility at the end of the Cold War. It definitely declined in utility as the sort of ubiquity of peacekeeping stopped in the early 2000s. And so we have been looking for what our role is in the international order for some time. The previous government, a conservative government, tried a more sort of moralistic approach, tried to be more of a, let's say, an international pit bull to some degree, you know, denouncing states that violate the rules-based order, trying to build relationships and encourage good behavior in states that are sort of on the line. And I think it had some wins and it had some losses. This government has tried to return to traditional form and be more of a small L, a liberal mediator on the world stage, has tried to be friends with everybody. I mean, before the most recent round of hostilities, in Russia that is, embarked on an effort to improve relations with both Iran, North Korea, and Belarus. All of those went quite upside down. Um, it has tried to sign deals, like I said, with China and India, has tried to become a strategic partner to a number of repressive regimes throughout Africa. And all of this has sort of amounted to nothing. It's amounted to embarrassment. And it, it has been kind of cast as general naivete, which I think is quite right. So what does Canada do now? I mean, it needs a reset. It clearly needs a foreign policy reset. That may come under this government. I think more likely it'll come under whichever government defeats Justin Trudeau in the next elections due in the next year and a half or so. But what comes next is so far from clear. You know, it's not true that the U.S. is our only strategic ally. Canada has ingrained itself more tightly with the European Union over the past few years, which has largely been good. There are arguments to be made that, you know, Canada is one of the most enthusiastic backers of the Ukrainian government and will likely be one of the most important partners as it tries to rebuild. And there may be a sort of utility for Canada in international development in figuring out what, what the sort of Marshall Plan looks like, both for Ukraine and elsewhere. There's a lot of possibilities on the table. But it's very clear that as Canada keeps sort of stepping on rakes in the international forum, it's closing more and more doors for itself and it's facing more time doing crisis management than actual kind of strategic envisioning. So things are not good, suffice it to say, and a reset is so desperately needed. Well, Justin, thank you so much for your time as always. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.